0: Morning, everybody. Is this thing on? Okay, great. So, as you can see, I've got part two of the message. Uh, the disadvantage of that is part one; all the good things have already been said. So, <laughs> now we're picking up in John chapter 17 again, and our text today it speaks well to that expression of unity that we just walk through together. You know, we're united with each other as we gather around the Lord's table, and we're united with God himself because of the broken body and the spilled blood of Jesus Christ that buys our forgiveness and cleanses us so that we have union with God. So we're going to talk more about the nature of that unity today. So if you can turn in your Bibles to John chapter 17, verse 20. And we're going to pick up in the second half of what has come to be known as the High Priestly Prayer. Now, last week, we heard that Jesus began this prayer by lifting up his eyes to heaven. And Jesus prayed that God would be glorified and that the disciples that remained with Jesus would become unified. But today, in the continuation of this prayer, the focus of who Jesus is praying for changes. It shifts. It shifts. Now, he's not only praying for the disciples who were with him, but now Jesus is speaking into the future. He's praying for those who will come to believe in him through the words of the apostles. And there's no expiration date on that prayer. So if you have come to believe in the Jesus of scriptures, then Jesus is talking about you. So you can highlight that in your Bibles, you can circle it, you know, whatever, this is special because this is the point in scripture when Jesus speaks directly to the Father on your behalf. Now, I hope in your own lives that you've had somebody take the time to pray for you, you know, and it's especially memorable when the person praying you look up to spiritually. And a few years ago, I had the experience of having one of the church elders here at Faith kind of take me under his wing, you know, and it was somebody that I really looked up to, you know, somebody I still do look up to. And it was just amazing that this man of God, um, this man of great spiritual stature, he, he took the time to selflessly pray for me. I mean, this guy's time is valuable. And he just put the rest of his life on hold, you know, for me. And that was something special. That was something heartwarming. And I want to invite you all into that same heartwarming feeling because you do, in fact, have somebody of great spiritual stature interceding, praying for you. And that person is, of course, Jesus Christ. And I mentioned that this is a selfless prayer because, you know, have you ever noticed when we're going through a hard time, there may be a temptation to focus our prayers inward. You know, we're praying for wisdom. We're praying for strength. We're praying for endurance to get through whatever we have to bear up under. And there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with praying for these things. But let's look at the state of the life of Jesus at this point in time as he's praying. You know, let's look at what is coming shortly for Jesus. The cross is approaching. He's currently being betrayed at this moment by one of the disciples, one of the pe- one of the friends that was closest to him, and he knows he's about to be abandoned by the rest of them. He'll be falsely arrested, falsely convicted, mocked, and tortured. He knows that he is going to carry the weight of the burdens of the sins of the world on his shoulders to the cross, and there he's going to drink the cup of the Father's wrath against that sin. And at this very moment in time, where do we find Jesus' attention? Is he worried about himself? No, he's concerned for you. So he truly spent himself in service to you in every way imaginable. Hebrews chapter 7 says that Jesus is our high priest, and he lives forever to make intercession, to speak with God on our behalf. And in the prayer of Jesus, we get a front row seat to this. We get to hear that intercession, so let's read our text today, starting in verse 20. It says, I do not ask for these only, referring to the disciples with them, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may be one Father, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. Now, like I said, this passage, it's become to be known as the high priestly prayer. And the word priestly, it isn't just some kind of religious adornment that was sprinkled into the text to make it sound more spiritual. The word priest, it does have special significance and it points us to a fuller understanding of the unique relationship that Jesus has with the Father as he's praying. Now, depending on your church tradition, the word priest, it may bring to mind an image of the man in the white collar, but I'm going to ask you to set that aside for today and we'll try to envision the high priest of the old covenant as described in the Bible. You know, men like Aaron, the brother of Moses who served as the, the first high priest that was descended from the of Levi. And let's try to envision Aaron. Because each piece of the clothing that the high priest wore as he did his work, it had special significance, and Jesus, who is our high priest, he perfectly fulfills the role of the high priest, making us right with God. And Aaron, he wore this, um, he wore this white turban on his head, and it had a gold plate that bore the inscription, "Holy to the Lord." Now, this was an, uh, a reminder of the importance, of the, uh, of the necessity of approaching the, God, approaching the Lord in perfect holiness when he intercedes for Israel. And Jesus, our high priest, he is completely without sin. He is thoroughly holy, so he can approach the Father. And there were these uh, decorative pomegranates that Aaron wore on the, the hem of his robe. And they were a symbol of the promised land that God would shepherd his people into a reminder of the fruitfulness that we have in obedience. And we, today, we have access into that heavenly promised land because of Jesus, our good shepherd. And Aaron also had this linen garment that he wore. And on the shoulders, it had stones to clasp the garments. And on the stones, the names of the tribes of Israel were inscribed in them. And that represented that the high priest, he was to carry the people on his shoulders into the presence of the Lord. And the connection I want to make with our text today is what Aaron, the high priest, wore over his hearts. Now in Exodus 28, we read, So Aaron shall bear the names of the sons of Israel in the breastpiece of judgment on his hearts when he goes into the holy place to bring them to regular remembrance before the Lord. So bring us into regular remembrance before the Lord. That is exactly what Jesus is doing in his high priestly prayer. And F.B. Meyer, he does a great job of painting a word picture of Jesus as our high priest as he's interceding for us. He says, As the weight of the jeweled breastplate lay heavy on the heart of the high priest of old, so does it press on Jesus. Jesus, he wants to make sure that we're looked after, that we're cared for when he's gone. And he asks the Father in this prayer for something on our behalf. In verse 21, he asks that they may all be one. So out of all the things that Jesus, our high priestly prayer, our high priestly prayer could ask the Father for, he asks for our unity. You know, that we may be as one. And what I'd like you to hear today is that we are called to a very specific kind of unity. Jesus is praying that future believers, which includes us, would be unified with the first century church in their core beliefs. Now, you really have to look hard to see this, but it's there in verse 20. Jesus says that he is praying for the unity of those who will believe in me through their word. So believe in him through whose word? Well, he's speaking to God in the presence of the disciples, of the apostles. He's talking about the testimony of the ones that Jesus is about to send, his apostles, And what were their words? Well, they're found in the New Testaments. So please hear this. Jesus is praying for the continuity between the core beliefs of the early church and the church of today and the church of the future. And these truths that are recorded in the apostolic teachings, they don't change. Truth is not relative. The church finds its unity in the true teachings of the Bible and we are only truly unified in so far as we follow the Jesus of the Bible together. And that's the difference between biblical unity and cultural unity. You know, we don't have to have all the same exact likes and dislikes. We don't have to read the same books, listen to the same music, like the same sports team. That's not important. But we do have to hold fast in the unity that is found in the fullness of the faith, once and for all delivered to us through the apostles of through the teachings of the apostles. And that teaching, it does not change with the shifting sands of culture. So again, our unity is something that is unique. Our oneness is found as we all look to Jesus and follow him together. In Ephesians 2.20, it expands on this concept of where we find our oneness by using a picture of a temple being built. It says that the household of God is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets now the prophets the prophets of the old testament all their prophesying they pointed towards jesus and the apostles all the teachings of the apostles pointed back to jesus and it says that jesus himself is the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the lord so that word cornerstone now in architecture the cornerstone is the first stone that's laid on top of a foundation. You know, it marks the direction. It marks the orientation of the whole temple. And all the other stones are placed in reference to that cornerstone. And Christ is our cornerstone. He sets the direction and the orientation of the church. Not the not the pastors, not the members, not the loudest voice in the room. Jesus is the cornerstone. He is our stability and the unity of this whole metaphorical building that is the church It rests squarely on Jesus. It has to, or it won't stand. Now, back in the book of Genesis, in chapter 11, we see an example of people coming together as one to build a literal building. Now, this was a time when all of humanity was united. They were united in language. They were united in location. They were united in purpose. But as I read, Notice that they are unified without any thought with God as a cornerstone. Let's see what happens. Genesis 11. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as the people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and they settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. And then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city And a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Now these people, they understood unity. They understood its great power and they set about making their lofty project happen. And we read that the vision behind the work was to make a name for themselves so that they wouldn't be scattered, so that they would remain together as one. Well, that doesn't sound so bad, right? But God didn't agree. God was not so thrilled. Let's read on. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, behold, they are one people and they all have one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing they propose will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down there and confuse their language so that they may not be able to understand one another's speech. So the Lord, he dispersed them from all over the face of the earth and they left off building the city. Therefore, the name was called Babel because the Lord confused the language of the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them all over the face of the earth. Now, the reason I mention this story is because I'd like to prove that unity in itself is not a virtue. Good or bad is found in the cornerstone on which the unity is built. So the people of the plain of Shinar, they built their tower in disobedience to God's command to spread out and to fill the earth. They were united, but they're united in building this incredible tower that was designed to bring glory to themselves instead of bringing glory to their maker as they were supposed to. Now Isaiah 42 8 talks about how God feels about this kind of thing. He says, I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I will give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Now, God, he guards his glory because he is the only one who is worthy of praise. God's not envious. God's not jealous. God's not threatened by the accomplishments of mankind. But God knows if that anything else were to be allowed to be exalted and praised, then bad things would follow because only God is truly good. Now, if we start to imagine that ourselves, that we could save ourselves, then his ability to save us from our sins, that would become obscured. So God, he acts to be sure that humankind never forgets that we cannot save ourselves by our own power, even if the whole world were to unite. So God guarding his glory from anything that seeks to rival it is God graciously protecting us from ourselves. Now, I don't know for sure, but the Tower of Babel, it was probably built to look like an inverted cone. You know, it wasn't a straight building like we imagine a tower today. It was wider at the base, and there was some kind of spiral staircase that ascended. And as you climbed, the spiral would become narrower and narrower. And the pinnacle, it was to represent the glory of mankind. Human vanity. All that they could accomplish represented at the top. But... Imagine with me another tower, you know, the same kind of architecture, the same kind of inverted cone design, but this temple is different. This one is built on the foundation of the apostles, the prophets, the teachings of the apostles with Christ as the cornerstone. And instead of human vanity and self-glory at the top, instead imagine God's glory, God's splendor, his renown, his fame at the pinnacle. And imagine us as believers down at the base of this tower, you know, it's wider, so we're all spread out. We're dispersed. There's distance between us, and that distance may be um, it may be a cultural divide, maybe it's a generation gap, uh, prejudices, political leanings, all the things that divide people. And at the base of this tower, we hear a call to enter. And as we pass by Christ, the cornerstone, we climb and we ascend those slopes that get narrower and narrower, and the distance between us closes. And we're drawing near to God, and we get to see his glory more clearly. And all those differences that we had that separated us at the bottom, they still exist, but they fade into the background because we we see something that is much more captivating, something that's infinitely transfixing. We get to see the glory of God. So when we are one with God, we are at one with other Christians. You know, it just happens naturally. And that's the joy of Christian oneness, meeting each other on that climb, knowing that we are moving closer to the only one who can save us. And we're experiencing closer fellowship with each other on the way. Now, this is what Jesus is praying for in verse 22. It says, The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me that they may perfectly become one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved me even as you loved me. So it's in this verse that we get to see the purpose of our oneness. You know, notice what it says at the end of verse 23. So that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. So please, please hear this. The results The end game of our Christian unity is that the world sees and believes that Jesus is sent by the Father. The world will see and believe that God loves, even as he loves the Son. In fact, the world will see that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. So, as a church, do we want to show the world the love of God that is found in John three sixteen. Of course we do, but the world won't believe it if we're not unified with each other. Now, disunity in the church obscures the fact that Jesus is the son of God, lovingly sent by the father to save the world. And if we can't get along, the credibility of the one that we represent takes a hit and the good news gets ignored. That's a very sobering thought for us. The stakes are riding high for our unity. Now, remember that next time you're tempted to tear down a brother or a sister over what, whatever happens to trip your trigger. Now, oneness, we know it's not an easy thing to accomplish. Now, the this, this social climate that we live in, it seems to be increasingly divisive. There's all kinds of issues to fight about. And it seems like the world is like a pressure cooker that's just about to blow up. But that's not a, that's not a new thing. You know, the disciples, they had some obstacles to overcome on their climb to oneness. Let's look at two of them in particular. On one hand, we had Simon the Zealot. And the Zealots, they were this hyper-aggressive political religious party amongst the Jews that they were the sworn enemy of the Roman occupation. You know, and they resisted the Romans violently. So that was one of the disciples. And on the other hand, we had Matthew, the Roman tax collector. And he was an employee of Rome. <laughs> you know, in first century Israel, these uh, these Jewish tax collectors, they were traitors to their people. He was a tool of the Roman impression because he made his living extracting taxes from his own people and anything that he could extort in addition to what was owed to Rome, the tax collectors got to keep for himself. So these were two people that apart from something miraculous, could never have existed in the same room together without it coming to blows, and yet there they were as one. Children of God caught up in following Jesus together, invited into this glorification of God, the Holy Spirit just opening their eyes, and the tax collector and the zealot, they got to see something that was infinitely more transfixing than just stewing and arguing about their differences. They got to see the glory of God. And in the oneness of these two unlikely people, the world got to see this staggering, transcendent goodness of God that could cause a zealot and a tax collector to unite. And the world took notice of it. So these two... They were the answer to the first half of Jesus's prayer that we talked about last week. The prayer that the disciples would be together as one. You know, that is radical unity. And the question I'd like to ask us today is, are we the answer to the second half of Jesus's prayer that we read today? That we would be as one. There's been a lot of dividing forces pressing in on the church over the past couple of years. There's lots to, degree on, to disagree on. So let's just take the most obvious example, the one that hit closest to home. You know, it's the church's response to COVID. And some, some people would have rather seen the leadership team at Faith make their decisions differently. Some folks very felt very, very strongly about this. And if you're one of those people who felt strongly, and yet you're still here worshiping with us, then yes, you are the answer to that second half of Jesus' prayer that we may be as one. Because real unity isn't proven until there's a disagreement that tests it. And if you disagreed, but you still treated others that you disagreed with honorably because you saw past the secondary things that divide us and kept your focus on the much higher, much more important calling to oneness that we have in Christ, then thank you you know, then hats off to you. And if more of the unbelieving world, I mean, if, if more of the, the church had done what you had done, then the unbelieving world would have had this up close, this personal demonstration of what real unity looks like. But the church as a whole, and not just faith church, we missed an incredible opportunity for for evangelism these last couple of years because we were so divided. You know, we weren't prepared. We didn't know what real unity looked like. And we missed an opportunity to show the glory of God. But now let's put in the work together to make sure that the next time something happens that would divide the rest of the world, the next time that comes down the pipe, let's make sure it doesn't divide us. You know, next election season, next pandemic, the next whatever. There will come a time when we are tempted to take those secondary things and put them front and center. And we have to keep those secondary things from becoming the primary things because our witness as a church, it cannot afford to let what we disagree on become the most visible, the most talked about, the most front and center aspect of this church. Now, instead, we need to put front and center the things that Jesus prays for us in our text today, that they may become the most visible things in the life of our church. You know, the love and the glory that we share because of our unity with God. And if we can train ourselves to focus on these things now, the next time something happens that would divide the world, we won't miss that chance to show the world what real unity and what real love looks like. Now, this is what Jesus prays for us in the high priestly prayer, our unity here on earth. But in verse 24, we get to see about the heavenly unity That awaits us. It says, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the worlds." So he says that they may be with him where he is, referring to us. And where is Jesus? He's in heaven, of course. Now, Jesus had already promised earlier in our readings in the book of John that we would be with him in heaven. Remember, he has prepared a place for you. Um, He's prepared a place for me, for the church to dwell with him forever in heaven. And now he's bringing this request before the Father in his prayer. And because of the prophetic book of Revelation, we get to look ahead and we get to see what the Father's answer to that prayer looks like. Revelation 7, 9. After this, I looked And behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches on their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne to the lamb. So our unity that we share in this room with one another and that we share with God, it stretches from here all the way into eternity. We're not there yet, obviously. So until that day is fulfilled, when it comes to the church, we've got a job to do in the meantime. We are to give a glimpse of this glory to the rest of the world. And God calls us to accomplish this through our unity. Sometimes discerning God's call on our lives, it's not an easy thing to do. You know, what's His will for me? Where do I live? Who do I marry? Where do I work? What's my career path? He doesn't always make these things crystal clear. But in our text, there is one thing that he makes abundantly clear, and that is that we are to be at one with one another. And Jesus tells us in verse 22 how this oneness comes about. Now, it isn't just accomplished through the teachings of the apostles like we talked about earlier. God gives us something else as well. Now, this is going to get a little confusing here, so pay attention, bear with me. It says that the glory that you have given me I have given them that they may be as one, even as we are one. So Jesus gives us the glory that the Father has given him. Okay, but what about what God said earlier through the prophet Isaiah when he said that I am the Lord and I will not give my glory to another. And now all of a sudden the Father is okay with giving this glory. So what's the deal with that? Why is that? Now the word glory—it has different shades of meaning depending on how it's used in the Bible—and Jesus uses the words glory a couple times in our text today. So in my research, I really wanted to be sure that I understood exactly what Jesus was saying. So I, you know, I really hit the books, uh, looked at the Greek translation of the word. Uh, the Greek word is doxan, and the um, the the, uh, the books they said that the definition was glory, used in a wide application. that wasn't exactly helpful. So let's look to some of those other words, those other occurrences where the word glory is used in the Bible to see which definition seems to fit what Jesus is talking about. So often we hear the word glory referring to praise, to honor, to fame. So does that fit our text today? Is the glory the Father gives to Jesus, which he gives to us, is that definition fit? Glory, honor, fame. Well, yes, because the church exists to give that fame right back to God. That's why we say, not to us, but to you be the glory, Lord. We're not trying to rival God's glory. We're not hogging it like the builders of the Tower of Babel. We are highlighting God. We are giving the glory back to him. So yes, that pleases God. God shares his glory as we glorify him. Now, uh, similarly, glory is also used to represent a beautiful adornment you know, something that will bring its owner praise. In Isaiah 62, we read, "Your, you will be a crown of glory in the hands of the Lord, a royal diadem in the palm of your God. So is the glory that Jesus shares with us, his unified church, is it an attractive adornment, you know, like a jewel in the crown of our God? Well, yes, again, this beautifying glory he gives us points back to God's own splendor. And lastly, sometimes in the Bible, glory is used to describe something much more mysterious. Glory represents the physical manifestation of God when he comes to earth. Now, that's not how we usually understand glory, so let me say that again. Glory can represent the physical manifestation of God's presence when he comes to earth, like when the glory of the Lord filled the temple or when God appeared in the burning bush when he talked to Moses or when God's presence was manifest in the pillars of fire and smoke as God led his people through the wilderness. So does that definition of glory fit as well? Well, the question to ask is, is the church the physical manifestation of God's presence here on earth? Yes. Yes, we are the body of Christ here on earth. So maybe that vague definition of wide application wasn't so bad after all, because our witness here as a church is indeed glorious in every sense of the word. But just so we're not prone to walk around with our heads swollen with this notion of God's glory, let's think about how Christ displayed the glory of God when he walked around here on earth. He did not come to exalt himself. He came in humility, to serve, and that is our glory as well. We don't glorify God by seeking to increase our own platform, our own influence, and then just say glory to God. No, we humble ourselves like Jesus did. Our glory is expressed as we follow the example of Christ. It says in Philippians chapter 2, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you not only look to his own interests, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God something to be grasped. So it is our glory to find unity in humble service to each other. And then later in the book of Ephesians, Paul tells us how we are to maintain that unity. Again, he calls us to humility to gentleness, to patience, to forbearance. He says, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling of which you have been called with all humility, gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. So we will have the support of Jesus, our high priest who intercedes for us as we strive to maintain our unity. Jesus, he closes his prayer with a promise to the Father, but it's also a vow to us. He says in verse 26, I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Jesus, he will continue to make his great name known, meaning all that he is all his greatness, all his praiseworthy attributes, his glory. He is going to continue to reveal that amongst us. And as he does, we are transformed in our capacity to love selflessly, sacrificially, to love humbly like Jesus will grow. And some of us, we're going to experience this reality more than others, to put it frankly. And it's the reason for that. Well, it's pretty simple. Some of us are going to be able to take the call of God to draw near to him through his word, through prayer, through his church, through pursuing unity more seriously than others will. Some will humbly serve one another with the same attitude of Christ and some won't be able to look past the differences that divide us. But it's never too late to turn. You know, if the Holy Spirit is revealing to you right now that you haven't been living in conformity with his will, to live in oneness with his people, then this is your opportunity to repent, to turn, to ask for forgiveness, and to ask for the grace that you need to be a living, breathing answer to the prayer of Jesus when he asks that we may be as one with him and with each other. Let's pray this morning. Heavenly Father, God, this morning, as one church body, we come before you to echo the words of your Son. God, we ask that we may be as one, as you are one. One heart, one mind, one spirit, one church bearing witness so that the world may see and the world may believe. God, may the world See through us that you sent your son to live and die on their behalf so that they may be forgiven, so that they may come to know the love that you have for us. God, I ask that you continue to make your great name known, both in the church and in the worlds. God, Father, strengthen the bonds of unity, of peace, and lead us into repentance when we fall short of that. God, thank you for the glory that you Graciously share with us through our oneness, our unity with you. And as we give the glory back to you, Father, I ask that you would cause your great name to be known through us so that the world may see that you are the God who saves. Amen.